0: Ladies and Gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The 1099. As always, I'm your host Joseph Noop, and I hope you are all staying safe and sound here in the lovely pandemic quarantine world. We're just keep rolling on. I'm going to keep saying this every episode. I thought I was only going to say it for a few weeks, but oh well. I am so so excited to be joined by the wonderful Frank Gasking of The Games That Weren't, a new book uh, out from Bitmap Books. Uh, a wonderful history of games that were not released, uh, cancelled, or for one reason or another just never saw the light of day. Frank, all
1: the way from the UK, how you doing? Uh, I'm good, thanks, Joseph. Uh, thanks for having us today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, we, as we discussed before the show, you know, I, uh, I've managed to read most of the book. It is, it is. A hefty tome. Uh, I was honestly shocked when it came in the mail. Uh, it Was just like, "Oh wow, this is my new Bible now." Uh, you could, you could, you could legitimately kill someone with this. But it is a a beautiful book. The games that weren't. Um, and you, your this is itself sort of a physical manifestation of the work you've done on the games that weren't blog uh, or sites. Um, and Mm -hmm. I, I would love to know, I, I actually, I didn't even, before I got the book, I didn't even know, uh, about games that weren't, um, the site. And I would love to hear just a little bit about, uh, you know, how you fell into that line of work and why, uh, this sort of work of game preservation and, uh, particularly the realm of canceled or unreleased games is fascinating to you.
1: Yeah, of course. So so basically, for me, the whole uh, getting into unreleased games and the whole preservation side, it was kind of several steps, really. The first thing for me was this magazine article that came out um, in a UK magazine called Commodore Force. They did a feature on unreleased games for the Commodore 64. And um, I was completely blown away by it because I wasn't really aware of games being cancelled or anything like that before. And this particular feature had a number of screenshots and they kind of like some of the games were actually leaked in some way. They kind of suggested that one of the games was released in the shops very briefly. So that kind of really piqued my interest that being able to sort of play games that you weren't actually meant to. And um, it kind of went from there. Really, I started to delve a bit deeper beyond the article, started to look around. And as time went by, I noticed that other games that were in magazines and advertised at the time, You'd see them pop up and then they would never appear ever again. You would, uh, they'd just completely disappear. And then you just kind of build up this list of knowing that there's a a large list of titles that were never released. And it kind of grew from that point, really. So uh, I don't know, did you want me to sort of go in a bit more how it sort of went from there and extend a bit more yeah
0: please by uh, by all means I would love to hear how uh, the games that weren't like the site that operation really uh, came to be
1: so okay so basically from from that point so I was building up this portfolio of games so I was collecting them for myself mostly and um, just for my own interest and getting these notes as I sort of discovered more things and then when the Commodore 64 started to die out commercially then um, we, we were having to sort of produce our own magazines and fanzines to kind of keep it alive and i was trying to kind of figure out what features and articles that i could do and then it sort of made perfect sense to to do one on unreleased games because i would started to find additional games on top of this original article and uh i started to share what i'd what i had actually found and um it kind of just ballooned from that point really the feature was called games that weren't um And basically, we did a number of uh, articles for this fanzine and then all of a sudden the internet happened and there was the opportunity to get your own free bit of web space and put up a website. And one of the first things I did was uh, put an archive up with a lot of the games I would found as downloads. Uh, And I kind of started to extend those a little bit. I started to tell the stories a little bit about what happened to the game and um any other information that i could find from magazines and that's kind of that's how everything really began and just grew from there
0: and to me it seems like one of the you're right on the sense that uh uh, games that like you you kind of feel robbed of like this opportunity to play this cool thing like reading through this book i was like oh yeah what would a charlie chaplin game look like or uh, or a game uh, from, uh, or like the original Fallout Three from Interplay, you know, would have been like, because hmm. there, especially if it's if it's a genre or format that you uh, are fond of, it, it, it playing history feels so much more uh, uh, engaging than you know reading about it or maybe seeing it in a movie or a documentary uh to play something with all the the warts and pimples and lack of content uh that you know is is a symptom of uh development cut halfway through uh is a special thing right
1: yeah definitely i it's it's like when you see you know when you get movies released and they always cut scenes out and there's that kind of interest of being wanting to see those scenes that were cut out right there's that kind of natural Um, sort of curiosity I think is that you see something and you think or how how bad was that game to have been cancelled or actually how good was it was that game any good Um, have we missed out on something particularly special perhaps I think that's what it is, it's just that curiosity I think we've we've kind of all got that a little bit in some shape or form be it with games or you know, bits of films that have been cut or music that's been lost to time, that kind of thing
0: Yeah, I... (laughs) whenever i think of movies that uh have like deleted scenes or something i i tend to think of the lord of the rings extended editions uh and i weirdly i actually vastly prefer the cinematic original cuts of the lord of the rings not because like oh four hours long for the uncut version but more like there's a lot of scenes in that uncut version that i'm like eh this this could be cut this could (laughs) reasonably be cut and uh, with games, it, it's it's a much more involved process, but the book itself, uh, The Games That Weren't, begins with this really kind of funny, bold font list of reasons given for games getting cancelled. Uh, I have the book right here, so excuse the shuffling mm-hmm. sounds, but uh, stuff like Ran Out of Time, Publisher Changed Mind, Licensing Bankruptcy, Too Ambitious, Quality Issues, Failed Location Test, Console Bombed, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Mm. Uh, when you... I'm sure that list is ultimately just a taste of the many reasons why a game could get shelved. But what what do you think about when you consider the multitude of reasons games can get canceled? What are the thoughts that kind of pop up in your head?
1: Okay, so um, one of the main things that I think about is uh, I, I think a company collapse generally. That seems to be like one of the main common reasons. But possibly the, the collapse of the console as well, the platform itself. That seems to be one of the common reasons I used to see a lot. Um, so when I started out in the C64, it was, a lot of the games were cancelled in the end because the platform was no longer financially viable. But then the programmer disillusionment as well is one of the other things. You'd see programmers just get completely fed up with what they were working on and mistreated. And sometimes it, games were just not simply fun enough. The company just made a conscientious decision to cancel the game because it just wasn't <laughs> good enough for them to release. I, though, I think no, that that's is uh,
0: I, I think that is one of the uh, more humorous uh aspects of a book like this is showing you like, okay, yeah, there's a couple of like gems that were lost to time, but also a lot of these games probably sucked.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately that's the case. Um, you know, even the ones even the screenshot of games that look really good, um, you'd build up that kind of anticipation in your mind. And when you actually do finally find it. Um, and there's quite a few cases I've had over the years of that, you you get a hold of the game and it was just it was no good at all. It was playable as a brick. Yeah, and, and
0: so speaking of that, of like finally, you know, getting your hand on a game and uh compiling this uh the, the book does this really uh excellent job of uh, for the vast majority of entries in here, uh giving a like umbrella reason why it failed, so like time bomb failed mm-hmm. testing or something. Uh, and then you yeah. go into uh, both, both like what the vision for the game was, and like what they managed to actually put in there, what they were hoping to put in there, and then eventually how how the game, uh, how the whichever game entry we're talking about uh, came to be shelved or canceled or whatnot. And I would love to hear just what seems like you do a r- lot of genuine like boots on the ground kind of reporting digging up names and contacts uh walk me through the process of how you discover these uh cancelled games and then how you follow up on those leads and and chart a meaningful history of something that for all intents and purposes no one's thought about in maybe a decade or two
1: so do you mean for for the book in particular i'm guessing how the process for that or just in general well
0: i suppose I, I
1: suppose for the uh
0: if if there's a meaningful difference i would love to hear both yeah uh
1: well, the thing with the book it was uh the with the book it was a lot more intense and in depth in terms of the level of research that went in so for the website initially um just to put something up uh if we found if we learned about a particular game to put on the website we would see it within a magazine or an advert for a game and then you'd never see the review or anything digitally preserved um we would just start by putting something very simple up on the website just to kind of um say oh do you know anything about this game contact us and it would kind of evolve from there we'd um we'd constantly add to that write up rather than try to get a fully detailed piece straight away the main reason for that is um you want to kind of get something up on the website quick because you're trying to find that game as quick as you can before it disappears completely, so there's a bit of a uh a race against time as such but with the book um you, from the off you're trying to produce like a write up which is quite in depth and you want to try and tell as full a story as possible so with the book in particular, you'll kind of. Initially, when you're trying to come up with the titles, you're checking magazines and the internet as usual for possible titles to cover. But then you're going to have to kind of figure out who worked on them. You have to then start trawling through the likes of LinkedIn, checking their sort of their their history of development to see if they worked at a particular company or mentioned the said title. Go onto Facebook and that kind of thing. And that's that's generally how it would start off really. Um, when I was doing the write-ups in the book, is that I would be going on these different social media outlets trying to track down particular people and then contacting them, asking if we could have a chat or an email, asking some questions, maybe get some extra voices from them. So they might suggest other people to contact, put put us in touch with and that kind of thing. And essentially what we would do is um, most of the work would be going through various magazines, Internet resources, chatting to those developers and trying to piece together a timeline of events as much as possible to kind of clarify who was involved exactly try and get their story and then eventually if when you have enough information you produce a draft like you start putting the story together and you sort of pass it back to them again and that's when occasionally you'll get um, people with some gaps in their memories and you try and sort of get mm-hmm. them to fill those gaps and you jog their memories essentially so uh, and you just kind of go in you go in that loop you keep doing your drafts you keep because often your first draft is going to have lots of mistakes in it you're going to have stuff that you haven't quite got right or you've read between the lines incorrectly and you just keep going back to them until those developers that you're talking to are happy and then um, that's essentially what we did for the entire book for every piece
0: and the one of the most fascinating aspects of that, you, you mentioned, you know, people's people's memories gets uh jogged or there's gaps in it. And memory is such a funny thing, especially when it's uh talking about um artistic endeavors that, you know, maybe you haven't thought about in two or three decades, particularly for, you know, all these uh older games from the seventies, eighties and nineties uh so many of the developers you interviewed just weren't sure if they were responsible for the art or programming or design of certain titles uh seemed like with uh there was a the starring charlie chaplin game um which i think was like supposed to be like on everything at the time uh the so many of the developers you talked to were like well i think i was and then Oh wait, my memory got jogged. And uh, how how do you navigate that as a reporter? And uh, you, it seems like it, it, similar to just any other uh, reporting uh, style, you're just trying to nail down the facts you can in fact confirm, and where you can't, leaving room for uh, uh, open ended discussion, right?
1: Yeah, you, you you kind of have to keep an open mind, really, and be very patient because you know over the space of 30 year 30 plus years you know developers work on hundreds of projects and you know those projects the lines get blurred between them quite often that's certainly what i found um but that's why it's important to get try and get as many people as you possibly can involved on that discussion um you know sadly sometimes it's not always possible i mean with charlie chaplin sadly most of those that were involved were were no longer with us and that's yeah why it makes it so important yeah it, it makes it kind of really important to try and document all these stories as soon as we can because the you know people who worked on these games are sadly getting older now and um but when you get multiple people involved there's lots of different angles and there's different recollections and memories some things don't quite add up and that's why having like when you produce a timeline based on those recollections, it's good to kind of pass that back. And then that does help to jog people's memories when they see it written down. And the same for the draft as well. When when they see things written down, often when they see other people's recollections from the other developers, then that helps to trigger stuff. And that's why it's kind of the whole process of doing the drafts and the write-up has to be an evolving thing. It's not something you work on for maybe a week and then that's done um, right onto the next piece you got to be prepared to go back to stuff to kind of update
0: yeah absolutely just like any any uh, archaeologist or historian you know you're you're trying to uh go back uh several times before you can really be sure something uh, happened the way that you know this or that journal or or interview uh, happened on it. For for older games, it seems like one of the common reasons development experience delays is like this push to put out these games on so many different consoles. Uh, younger gamers, you know, are are so used to just Xbox, PlayStation, Nintendo, and PC. If mm-hmm. you know they they have the money to build one or buy one, and uh, Back in the seventies, eighties, and even uh, partially like maybe through the nineties with like Dreamcast or whatnot, uh yeah. there there was just a, a considerably larger swath of game consoles or PC tools that people were able to play things on, and this resulted in so many different um, uh, conversions and ports of games that mm-hmm. pro- proved well. I th- I thought that was kind of the fascinating thing of like some of these games. Yes, were canceled, but are actually you know they were commercially available on like one console before that. Uh, how how does that 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 era of the games business when there were so many consoles coming out? How how does that impact? Uh, the way developers were um, forced to make tough decisions, like shelving a game.
1: So I think I agree that there's there's quite a few companies that did try and do too many things. They that was the issue. A lot of companies that they would try and be everything rather than just focus on particular platforms. And um, I think it was quite a common problem. Uh, System three for Last Ninja, as you can see, you know they tried to release the game on so many platforms just to make as much money as possible. But the issue. Often is that the teams are quite small. They, they haven't got the resource to actually stretch themselves across all those platforms. So for something like Last Ninja, or maybe on, uh, for other companies, they would get um, external developers in to, like an external company, to try and do to, to produce a conversion for them. But the issue with that is if you get external developers back then, sometimes you were kind of like throwing money into a pit. You didn't know what you were going to get back. And quite often these external developers would struggle with the conversion or produce something that was rubbish or not up to scratch and they'd have to chuck it all away. And that kind of happened quite often. Um you know, Last Ninja in particular, they I think the issue with that was slightly different. That was more of a case of sort of unrealistic goals and deadlines, along with the lack of support. But yeah, I'd agree that you know companies back then because they they weren't sure which horse to back so some some of those companies would try and back everything just to try and be safe but actually they caused more problems than actually um solved any yeah the
0: the last ninja which was supposed to be developed by uh system three was originally supposed to be on uh the atari 800 and 130 xe the amstrad cpc the atari st commodore amiga tandy color computer three and zc spectrum 48k two or three of those i forgot existed before (laughs) i i read this entry uh but yeah i uh uh and and it seems like especially when publishers uh were like okay let's let's convert this to another console to you know uh, uh widen our our uh money pit uh they're uh maybe it's like because the game industry hadn't been around long enough to establish um sensible workflow uh practices uh, but you you had so often it seems like uh developers who were handed art assets or or code and really nothing else and said like hey recreate this game with this like one like chunk of it with uh and and then it's like well of course the game that the new team or new developer makes is going to look a little different I, and that seems like a fascinating thing to me because like last ninja is kind of a, a solid example of that too of like one version has like this color grading and the other is black and white and so the ui is a different and it's it's really like it's really like taking someone else's painting and trying to bob ross your way uh to a copy <laughs> you know
1: yeah it's exactly that it's it, i mean some of these people are actually lucky that they get any art at all i mean some of the developments they're literally just told to if it's an arcade conversion i oh, go to the local arcades and just copy what you see so if you were <laughs> at least given the artwork then that was a starting point but didn't always happen unfortunately
0: yeah, I um in the last uh, couple months here I've taken a shine to voxel art, the you know, the kind of block based art that like Minecraft is famous for and such and I I'm slowly getting mm. better. But like when I was when I was starting out, I uh was really like I would look at someone else's uh piece. Uh one of the first ones I did was like this kind of rocky valley uh with like a, a very boxy looking temple very very simple overall but like kind of cool for for my skill level at that point and i recreated that piece and it <laughs> i i'm proud of it for what it was but it's definitely like oh yeah the original was definitely way better because that was someone who knew what they were doing and had a vision and <laughs> i'm just i'm just here to copy it yeah
1: well at least you have a go that's the main thing so if you don't have a go you you, you don't learn so <laughs> exactly yeah i uh, yeah. you know and and speaking of like
0: you know differences like a lot of the the reasons for um differences in games that were converted or ported seems to be that uh the, this there was this fertile ground for discovering canceled games because of the the leaps between generations of hardware were basically like forcing developers hands uh pretty often in this book um there are games that were canceled because there were poor console sales or they were like hey this console uh just isn't powerful enough to achieve this vision we have for this game um maybe we'll switch focus to the next one but yeah uh what do you what are your thoughts on you know how um this really rapid pace especially of those early generations of consoles uh impacted the way publishers kind of wanted to cut losses on the you know quote-unquote next gen of that era
1: uh i'd say as as time went on like you got to a stage when the super nintendo came out and there was the, the you had that thing where you had to pay up front a cost of like producing the cartridges and that kind of thing that that seemed to be when the publishers were like being extremely careful because they had to make sure that the market was still viable before they made a large commitment. I mean, back in the day of like the early computers and uh, consoles, that there was less risk involved to a point. Um, you know, there was no sort of upfront cost as such. But as it went later on, you know, it was really important to be extremely careful, and that. Kind of happened on a number of titles. So you had uh, Green Lantern, for example, was one of the key ones where twice they tried to do a SNES conversion, and um, the the final iteration was just eventually cancelled because that it was too late. The you know people were getting rid of the SNES and they so moving over to the likes of the PlayStation and Saturn. Um, and it happened also with Half Life on the Dreamcast. There was a really fantastic conversion that was produced on the Dreamcast. Um, from the sort of little loading slowdowns and stuff it was really really good Um, and that simply just got canned by Sierra because the uh, Sega had announced that uh, they were pulling out of the Dreamcast market Uh, so the shelves they inquired with the shops at the time to see what they were going to do about the shelf space and they all confirmed that the shelf space was going to be cut by half so kind of what do they do they've got a complete game they spent money on but they're going to lose more money for actually getting the uh cds to be pr- the actual uh, whatever the cd medium is of the Dreamcast, cost not member um to get that format pressed how much money is that going to cost and are they going to make that money back so in the end they decided they probably wouldn't so they they canned an entire game which is a massive shame
0: and that seems like a another aspect of any any art form really is sometimes as a creator you're like okay this isn't this isn't working or like i don't have the right tools for this like let me let me can this and and start over like i i i to go back to my voxel art example i've been trying to figure out how to uh uh do some sort of piece as a like uh tribute or just a a uh perspective on the wildfires we've had here in the uh uh like pacific northwest of the u.s uh but like i don't know how to make trees and it's really difficult to make trees in uh that software or at least ones that look good and i'm i'm like putting that that project on the shelf so one of the one of the general themes i i kind of sensed reading through the developer interviews you had was um uh, eh, either like a sense of regret and I have a question later about this but uh, mm-hmm. when developers learned that their game was getting cancelled or at least postponed because of uh, jumping to next gen focus uh, did, did that seem to hit them less hard than uh, uh, fully losing out on a vision they had for a, a console that was still going to be around for
1: a long time yes i think so i mean i basically because it's not being cancelled their work hasn't been wasted as such um right. it might be that the artwork needs to be redone but a lot of the code they could just transfer across and reuse the the ideas the actual design for the game so there's probably some frustration there because they might have to redo a bunch of work again and essentially almost start from scratch but um it's going to be a lot less catastrophic than having the entire project cancelled and all of their work chucked away. So yeah, I'd say there's a a little bit of frustration, but not as much as a full cancellation by any means.
0: And, you know, the, the last, jumping off of the, that line of questioning, the last big chunk of the book focuses on, um, like the 2010 to like 2015 and such, and a lot more modern, uh, canceled games. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Uh, thinking about like the list at the beginning of this book of like all that multitude of reasons why games getting are getting canceled. uh, uh, That's kind of changed in the last 10 to 20 years with Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo carving out their uh, unique niches and PC gaming, of course, growing in popularity. How do you see that shift uh, affecting the rate and nature of games getting canceled? Because to me, it seems like, a game getting canceled is a bigger deal than it uh, used to be because I, one, it seems like there's uh, there's there's certainly more game developers and more studios, but like projects are bigger than they've ever been before, and uh, budgets and investments are bigger than they've ever been before. How do how do you like regard that change as time has gone on?
1: Well, with the the bigger companies, there's uh, the the larger budgets and the investment, there's kind of a lot more care taken um, with what's being produced and what's being marketed. So they kind of, most of the time, what's being produced is well-known and tested franchises, which have little risk. So the same kind of first-person shooters or the same racing games or football games, things that they know are going to sell. So in some respects, it's rarer to see cancellations from larger companies. and when it does happen it's it can be it's fairly catastrophic because of the amount of money that's been spent and the resource that's been involved when when you hear of a big name cancellation often it's because a studio has been taken over or closed down because they've you know financially struggled rather than the idea itself being decided it wasn't good enough i mean they they try and pre plan that a lot better than maybe in like the 80s and 90s for instance um but there are cases though where you know the planning hasn't gone quite right and they've underestimated what's involved so you know you get long drawn out development and that eventually can result in the collapse of the company because they've run out of funds or something like that but generally i think cancellations are still quite high it's just from a slightly different angle um it's more from like the smaller companies and the indie developments where you get a lot more cancellations because there's more developments going on where there's less risk. And some of the reasons can just simply be down down to things like, you know, lack of time, loss of interest rather than an entire company collapse, for example. So, the only thing I was just going to say is that you may not hear about a lot of those sort of smaller titles because the companies behind them don't have the punch of a company like Nintendo or Sony. So, you know, or if the indie developer hasn't announced that project, that's it's the only reason you might not hear about it. So I think there's probably just as many as there were in the 80s or 90s, maybe more, but we just don't know.
0: Yeah, no, a- excellent point um, about that. Like I've I've been to enough uh, game developer conferences in the past to see. Uh, of course, you know, the, the big companies have their massive booths and, and their huge stage presences, but uh, the, the smaller publishers and developers with like, you know, one TV set up at a, at a rickety booth, um, it, it's, I'm sure if I looked back at a lot of those that came through those halls that uh, many of those probably never saw the light of day or if they did. Like support for it was uh, canceled shortly after because uh, uh, it it just did not get the audience it needed. I think a lot of um, uh, disintegration, which is from Marcus Leto and his team, the one of the Halo co creators, uh, mm-hmm. this. That like on on the surface kind of a fascinating game uh, about like a, a robot driving a hover cycle and like it has a very halo vibe like shooter stuff to it but they they cancel they they shut down the multiplayer uh less than three months maybe after launch because uh, no one really bought the game and like it didn't get very hot press uh and that that is funny to me to the the idea of like oh maybe now the modern the modern years of the games industry, uh sure that single player game will exist on Steam at least until you know someone decides to take it off I guess or can't pay like a licensing yeah. fee but the multiplayer this thing that has to be actively supported and cultivated and uh, whatnot uh is is gone is lost of time like just like with uh mm. the original like halo 2 multiplayer got its, sh- its server shut down uh, a few years ago forcefully uh
1: yeah yeah that's a shame that's another aspect of it as well is um about a lot of these games where it relies on multiplayer and when they get shut down what happens to these games and how do you actually access them um i think we're lucky we've got things like game ranger to extend the life of some of these titles but I think there's quite a lot of titles which um, we can no longer play properly online because the servers are gone. It's a, it's a massive shame. I don't know quite how that's going to be handled in the future. If someone will maybe fill, plug that gap in.
0: Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Some, some sort of uh industry acolyte. One of the, um one of the, the aspects of both Uh, older and more modern game development that fascinates a lot of people i know is industry burnout and um how how people filter out of the industry as a result of uh either outright harassment or just poor work practices or just in the sense of uh game development the work crunch of course is a very hot topic um uh cd project red you know with cyberpunk 2077 it's coming under additional fire for for all intents and purposes kind of going back on their promise to uh, avoid crunch and uh just this morning that we're recording this they actually announced that they uh are that cyberpunk went gold so like that still means there's still plenty of work to do but like okay maybe they're starting to get out of the woods on that but burnout as a result of a failed project or a canceled project Uh, seems, from some of the entries I read in here, and Last Ninja is another uh, solid example of this, uh, like Rick Adams and Phil Melvitt, um, two developers you spoke to, uh, really seem to have, like, kind of venom in their recollection of their time with, uh, the developers and working with publishers. And, uh, they got out of the industry and now, you know, either work in it or some other field of technology. And, uh, that, that, that kind of genuinely, uh, bummed me out because, you know, I, it's, it's still going on to this day where, the industry pays people uh, little enough that only the young, scrappy people can can continue to uh, sacrifice to make that uh, uh, development happen. But um, but by the time that most developers are like in their thirties, or God help them, their forties, they mm-hmm. decide to get out. And there's this brain drain in the industry. Uh, uh, tell me, tell me a little bit about your experience talking to developers who ended up moving on from the industry either as a direct result uh or or shortly
1: thereafter uh
0: the cancellation of a project
1: so unfortunately it's what you've just explained is quite a a fairly common tale and it still happens today unfortunately you kind of you, you have this picture in your mind when you're growing up as a kid about how wonderful the games industry is, and what a fast, what a fantastic um, industry it is to work for. And for the most part, it is. It is very exciting, and a lot of people who get into it, they don't regret it. They still love it today, even though they've been doing it. You know, they've been doing it since the '80s and '90s. And but there's just some cases where I think, unfortunately, people they they go to particular companies or developers uh, as their first experience, and it's it's not the right place for them. It's not a particularly good company or uh, a supporting company so they get a very bad experience they potentially lose money and sleep and god knows what else their sanity at at times and it's a bit of a wake-up call for them when they go through one failed project they ask themselves do they really want to go through that again and not for a huge amount of money either so it's in the 80s in particular in the uk there's this big promise of if you could be like a gaming superstar and be driving your own sports car and that kind of thing and the real the reality was um, a lot of these kids would get into the industry and they'd get a couple of hundred pounds for a game or something ridiculous and you know they'd move on and go into a prop into what they would call a proper job so yeah and it still happens today unfortunately um, with the crunch that you've mentioned on these large in these large scale teams that these the, these large projects are huge the amount of developers involved. Uh, trying to actually guess how long a game's going to take to build, um, I think you, you're going to be guessing to a point. So I think um, people always underestimate how long something's going to take to build. So there's going to be pressure on, there's so, many, so much pressure from the company to those developers to try and make as best product as they can, because they need to make their money back, otherwise the company's going to collapse. And there's that kind of pressure that's unfortunately put on the developers. So... I mean, personally, I would hate to work in, in the games industry. I, I think I'd struggle with that. <laughs> um, not you know, not just for the reason that you'd get completely um, bombarded with uh, work and uh, crunch time, but you haven't got that autonomy. You haven't got that kind of individuality when you're making a game either. In the 80s and 90s, when you worked on something, it was clear to see what you'd produced, whereas now you're kind of a small cog in a large machine but that's a that's right. a separate story anyway.
0: I I forget if it was a specific entry in the book or if it was maybe in the foreword or something but there's a mention of that image of early like 80s uh early 90s game developers um you know ma- making tons of money and driving lamborghinis and like you know uh being rock stars uh during the course of their careers was obviously like a very false image that was itself kind of just created by marketers and publishers to uh uh, kind of put put a put a face put an auteur on the face of a game right and say like hey this is the game from this guy or look at how cool this guy is you definitely Mm. want to play uh his game right
1: yeah you 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 had companies that i mean some companies that did that they generally had too much money so they could buy like uh, their their child programming prodigy a Ferrari or something but some of the companies that tried to do that image they didn't have the money in the first place so they would end up overspending and um, collapse so we had that quite a bit in the UK there was a famous case with a company called Imagine Software um, which uh, they they were doing a documentary on them and uh, showing their vast money that they were making and you actually see them collapse live on you know, as the documentary's being filmed, it was just fascinating.
0: Yeah, and um, I one of the other things that really fascinates me too is just the way that um, the, the relationship between publishers and developers and marketers uh, has evolved over the decades. Uh, one of the most fascinating entries in the book—it's a shorter one—but I, I I love the art <laughs> for it: uh, the Resident Evil Game Boy Color uh, port. Um, of course, yeah. even even the original Resident Evil, you know, was a 3D game, uh, but uh, here was supposed to be this 2D conversion of it to give some sort of similar survival horror experience in the, the arts that is in the book, at least, is, you know, a very uh simple looking pixelated zombie walking down the hallway at like jill valentine or some pixel representation of her uh Mm -hmm. and i i guffawed when i read at the end of the entry that like uh the the artist was basically asked to redraw the entire map for no additional pay which would like fundamentally change the perspective of the whole game like he he was like originally trying to like recreate the the top down effect kind of thing but they were like oh let's try something else and yeah it's like well are you gonna are you gonna pay me for another game because that's what it's gonna take <laughs> uh and they were like no so he like he just said well deuces uh, i'm out uh that how do you see like that that interfacing between uh uh marketers and publishers and what their expectations for developers are and how that influences whether or not a game um, gets cancelled
1: i personally i mean people might disagree with me but i think that it's a fairly rare case where you get someone asked to do a bunch of like an entire set of game art for free charge without (laughs) being paid extra i mean i know i know you do get artists who are kind of asked for like you know they get asked to do free artwork because it's good for your exposure for exposure yeah um yeah that that kind of rubbish and maybe it does happen in the games industry i've not heard about it too much but i think usually what happens if someone leaves the team they just they just get someone else to come in and pick up that work and get it completed but it does happen i mean probably less so in modern times with teams of like 100 plus people but back in the days of like one to three people teams if If you had the lead developer just leave due to stress or anything else, uh, unreasonable expectations, then it's either a case of getting someone else in to come in and pick up that code or to then completely start again if that's not possible. And it's at that point you have to decide to cancel if it's not going to be financially viable to continue. It might be that if it's a licensed game or something, the license has run out or the platform they were working on if they spend another six months to start from scratch by the point they actually complete it it might not actually be viable any longer so yeah there's a little bit but i'd say it's fairly rare
0: yeah i um the in the case of like developers kind of finding themselves uh suddenly shunted into another role uh out of necessity or someone leaving on the project i i actually just interviewed um, Ed Smith, a engineer with APF, who was uh, partially responsible for bringing the uh, MP1000 and the Imagination Machine to life, and you know uh, oh, uh, one of those early, one of those early competitors to the Atari, of course. And uh, uh, even though he was like a, a dyed in the wool engineer, like you know wanted to like tinker with you know motherboards and whatnot for the rest of his life, he ended up also taking on game testing responsibilities and uh it's fascinating to think of like well okay this by nature or or lack of nurture uh this guy has not had any uh formal education on like qa uh quality assurance so here he is like determining you know how how this company is tackling bugs in their like clones of atari games and yeah it's just it's fascinating to me
1: yeah that case of getting sort of lumbered with a role which you know because no one maybe it's because you just happen to show some aptitude to some part of that role where they think oh yeah. we'll <laughs> just get that person to do it and they stick it onto your list it's it's like um the person because you're the person who does the work and you're good at doing the job you're the person who gets all the work essentially that's what it is isn't it it's a shame. it doesn't really work <laughs> It stresses you out
0: <laughs> the 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 lesson kids never show initiative uh <laughs>
1: just never show initiative don't do any work don't do any work yeah. at all be really lazy and you won't get any more projects yeah exactly desk, so. exactly
0: that's 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 how i uh, get out of doing the dishes uh <laughs> no i uh i uh one of the things that you know in modern times it seems like uh the relationship that a publisher has with uh, a studio um is is still very much dependent on of course how much money a game is making and it seems to me that like rather than canceling uh projects mid-development maybe a more common occurrence is like as in the case of dead space uh basically killing the franchise after three entries uh and the third entry more often than not is kind of a uh significantly Uh, reduced or different uh, experience than the first or maybe first two games that define a series and you you hear the horror stories of like well dead space 3 sold you know x millions of copies and still continues to like you know hold a place in horror gamers uh, uh pop culture you know iconography but because the game didn't sell you know 20 million copies Uh, this like unrealistic expectation for a game that's trying to be all things to all people Uh, they're going to shelve it rather than like you know having realistic goals like what do you think about it when um, uh, a publisher um, kind of puts that on a game studio or a franchise
1: it's just ridiculous really because um first of all if you're going to how are you going to produce something that everyone's going to enjoy i mean you're probably going to end up with something quite diluted to be honest i mean it seems like if you're trying to produce something for everyone then you're making something that's um, a very casual sort of game so you're probably going to lose sort of aspects of the original game if you do that so then the people that supported that game from the very start ones the core um sort of fans of that franchise they're going to be the ones who really miss out and i think that's a massive shame but <laughs> and it's it's a shame i think for the developers as well especially if it's those who've worked on the original game if they're having to sort of um add stuff into a game just to make it accessible to everyone and everyone um that kind of defeats the object of probably why most people go into game making they're trying to make something which is something really special Whereas I think if you're trying to make something for everyone you're gonna lose you're gonna lose aspects of that
0: yeah and you know speaking of like de- developers it, it is a special thing when a developer has a genuine uh, desire to make something special something different or something meaningful to players that you know of course won't won't sell a billion copies but like will mean something very personal to the mm. couple hundred thousand that play it and one of the more fascinating entries in the book is the entry on uh, EA's Sim Mars, um, which really came before uh, even The Sims uh, was a a burgeoning franchise. Uh, It was much like um, Surviving Mars, which uh, has done fairly well in modern times. Uh, Sim Mars seemed like this game where uh, the developers were really passionate about uh, translating Uh, uh, philosophical ideas into the mechanics of the game. I wonder, can you tell me about Sim Mars? And then uh, when that game eventually got canceled so the studio could focus on The Sims, uh, it seems like the developers had some really unkind words. And I noticed a big theme of regret for what was lost because it really... Out of all the entries in this book, it seemed like one of the ones that they were that developers were most uh, genuinely passionate about and wanted to make something very meaningful.
1: So with Sim Mars, uh, yeah, I recall one of the developers was saying that they um, were a little bit harsh with one of the producers. I think um, off the top of my head, um, I think it, I think it wasn't anything too serious. It probably wasn't one of the more serious fallouts like in say some of the other titles but i think it just it just happens to everyone it's fairly common we all probably go through points in our lives where we say things we regret with our far more immature brains at that time it's that seems to be the case in the games industry as well i mean you would get clashes of personalities people who are managers or producers who are not really sort of cut out for it they maybe um hadn't had that experience so they kind of clashed really badly with the developers and the artists but often what i found is over the years um you know people mellow out so that was certainly the case with sim mars and the um the guy in question uh saw it as water under the bridge essentially it was just something that happened back then and you know there's no hard feelings and you know that that's fairly common thankfully but of course there are exceptional circumstances where you know the there's unkind words that are said for a very good reason because of the stress that person's been put under or unrealistic pressures that, you know, there's no way for reconciliation. That is a shame really, but I think that that's life really. You kind of, you do get into situations like that, unfortunately.
0: Yeah, no, I I could absolutely see that. It, it seemed like a case of um, the developers having good intentions and maybe The publisher having the good intentions, but also having to necessarily be a bad guy in that situation of like, well, hey, we this franchise is struggling to make money. Let's focus on this thing that like makes money and keeps everyone employed, you know, and keeps a roof over everybody's head. But um, uh, it was an interesting example to me just because of the,, uh, kind of kind of seemed like feature creep. They kept wanting to add in all of these things that like took took elements from real world uh, research they had done with astronauts and NASA scientists, but,, uh, uh, to see that, yeah, fall by the wayside. It, it's it's funny now to see a game like surviving Mars, which is for all intents and purposes. Mm. what sim mars probably wanted to be uh take some of that spiritual um uh, gravitas of what the ea what the uh, ea developers were hoping to do i think i think in the last couple uh minutes i got you i want to ask maybe two or maybe three more questions but uh i i would love okay. to hear your thoughts about um game companies especially large ones like nintendo sony microsoft they seem remarkably uninterested in compiling and releasing any information on any of their canceled projects and nintendo is like this particularly weird beast where some of their core intellectual property are like barely supported after a certain point and there uh, arises this um uh, uh uh, environment for you know emulators and 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 other uh sorts of clones and copies of the games uh and i i understand that to an extent like obviously a company doesn't want its competitors to uh steal their resources or like learn what they're developing on before it's ready Mm -hmm. uh but what do you make of like why game companies are so especially adverse to um uh, showing the history of their games and the obvious uh missteps and setbacks and cancellations that uh they they encounter along the way?
1: It's it's something that's more prevalent in sort of like past ten or twenty years. I think mostly if a company's still going. Um the the main reason why I think companies or people in those companies are reluctant to talk is because nowadays they have to all kind of sign non-disclosure agreements uh, and that's something i found even though they're no longer at the company they they have a fear that if they talk about some of these cancelled projects they might not get future employment with that company or another company so often i mean to actually see a company itself uh release assets from something that's cancelled I guess they don't see the point, maybe because there's no financial financial benefit to them to actually do that. Um, so often, unless there's some kind of illegal leak, like with the Nintendo files recently, you're kind of reliant on those big name companies to look after the materials and make them available, which is, you know, and if they're trying to protect their IP, maybe it's an IP they can reuse at a later date. That's kind of understandable to a point because you don't want to be just putting out materials which you could potentially turn it later into a game. But I think in most cases, um, a lot of those companies, they have stuff that's canceled that they don't plan to do anything with, and they never will. So they're kind of left what they're actually doing with those files. Um, are they just being left to rot on a CD or DVD to deteriorate? Um, but That's the thing. It's, it's a massive challenge really. I think it's due to all the above, it's going to be much harder to preserve titles from bigger name companies and systems, you know, and share that information. And I think the Nintendo leak in particular uh, could have a huge impact and make companies more reluctant to potentially back up their data, you know, concern that it will get hacked or leaked to the world. I mean, it's, it's hard to say during these early days, but I think yeah. indies, like we mentioned indies and smaller companies previously, I think they would be much more open to see their old stuff released, you know, at a point where they feel the IP is not going to go anywhere. And if the companies themselves close over time, that may change things as well. I mean, um, one example in the book, we cover a game called Marsoc by Zombie Studios. And Zombie Studios didn't close that very long ago. So um, because they were closed down, they were quite open to discuss one of their titles and share a lot of assets with us. So, you know, that might not have been the case had they been still open and still uh, um, producing games.
0: Yeah, it it seems like um, uh, in that case, yeah, certainly like a a developer has no like need to protect that IP because no one's like ever going to make like a profit off of it. But uh, and like you, it's that weird thing of like you're coming to them as a a, for all intents and purposes, a historian who's like, hey, I just want to maintain this and not really like you know massively profit from the business of people visiting this site or buying this book or whatnot but uh and nintendo it seems like a weird beast because like japanese companies are are like pretty weird and very insular uh they they tend to uh keep a even tighter leash on uh things like yeah like that mario leak uh was a very rare example of something getting out um uh, to me, it's, it seems like so. Like, to go back to Mario as an example, you know, they just had the Mario uh, Super Collection or whatever it was called, the 3D All Stars mm-hmm. Collection come out with yep. uh, Mario 64, which I think was just kind of like a direct port. There wasn't like any massive work done on it, and uh, Sunshine and the first Galaxy game. And you you see like a company like yes for a profit absolutely more than willing to uh celebrate and re-release content it has made uh to like celebrate this history and this ip and be like oh hey you know maybe you were too young to enjoy this back in the day or like you you really want to see the roots of your favorite franchise but it it would behoove so many game developers and fans to see like well you know what what were the roots that like didn't take off uh and yeah to me it's just it's sad that uh a company like nintendo might never like show too much of i I would love to see like where did the mario mario is regarded so often as an example of a game that's like so many of them are you know 10 out of 10s and and regarded Mm. as as iconic classics uh, but you know, where you don't, you don't get to that without some failures along the way. And I would love to have seen, uh, more of those guts.
1: Yeah. It's the, it's the cut scenes, isn't it? For movies, it's essentially what you want to see. You want to see how do they get to that final sort of design decision? I mean, I think like super Mario brothers, there has been bits and pieces sort of released. I don't know if it's directly from Nintendo or other sources, can't think where it's from but they they do show some of that but it would be nice to see more of it uh, and that's what the Nintendo leaks recently have shown they've shown how certain games like pilot wings how pilot wings first started out as a completely different style of game and to me I don't see any harm in that being released I mean they could maybe release that as bonus content on a compilation or something like that but I, I guess it I guess it's um it's a it's a case of time and money are they actually going to get anything back from adding all this extra bonus content onto a compilation or can they just release the compilation with the bog standard emulated games and cover art scans? And there probably isn't much difference. That's the, that's the tragic thing really. Um, it's, it's down to goodwill I think of the company to, to make that information available and share it with people.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think it was, it was Star Fox two, uh that came out on the uh snes like digital library for the switch uh not that long ago as like a very surprise uh like whoa we never like this game like literally never came out before this and like someone decided to uh make it relatively feature complete and and nintendo like hey i had that goodwill and uh it 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 seemed like a really like benevolent kind of move on their part to be like you know hey yeah you're not going to make any money like off the star fox ip like that that ship has sailed but uh to to show your appreciation to the fandom that made nintendo what it is is a
1: a a very important thing i think i think that's a good for sorry go ahead so i think that's a really good point about star fox 2 though because um by the fact of them advertising that the game was going to be released as part of the SNES pack, they probably sold more packs. So, you know, maybe that's how they, if they were to advertise that these compilations have this bonus cut content, then more people might be willing to buy it because they think, oh, I'm going to see all this cool stuff I've never seen before. So maybe they haven't really thought about it. I don't know. But they've certainly done it with Star Fox 2, like you say, so.
0: Yeah. My um, uh, Patrick Klepek of uh, the Waypoint and Vice Games podcast uh, made an excellent point back when the Mario All-Stars just came out was, um, you know, how, how amazing would it be that like for the players who are really only getting this for like maybe two of the three games uh, are, are interested in Uh, you know a documentary series or like some digital concept art gallery that you can access in the game that that's one of the favorite things I have like I just finished the uh, Resident Evil 3 remake and like the game itself is a like perfectly fine game it's not like amazing but seeing the concept art and seeing like oh I see how they got to the final iteration of this environment or this like iconic moment or design uh, is is a meaningful thing to me as a gamer but I think um, as as we wrap up here, I would lo- you know just love to wrap up on what do you think is your favorite entry in the games that weren't book and that illustrates one why it's so important to uh, uh, research the this part of the game industry uh, and maybe also to just is a a fascinating tale of um, uh, a, a game being shelved before its time
1: was due oh that's gonna be like picking your favorite child okay it's really <laughs> i've not really thought about that to be honest um let's have, just have a quick scan actually just thinking yeah um means. okay I'd, I'd say one of my personal favorite write-ups has to be it's due to the history that i've had behind the title as well and it's um daffy duck entry huh? yeah and the reason for that is that Daffy Duck was like one of the first was one of the first games that I started researching when I was um when I was young and started doing games that weren't and um like trying to find out that that's a game that I spent quite a lot of years trying to find out more about and actually trying to find the Commodore 64 edition which we eventually did recover and release it so um it it was a dead cert to go into the book but I enjoyed actually doing the the, the write up in the book because it was the opportunity to kind of look at the other platforms that didn't see a release and see if there was any possibility of trying to find them or we'll find out a bit more about them. So that was quite enjoyable to do because it was it was a way of celebrating all of the hard work that we spent over the years trying to find out about the C64 edition, but then have a look at those other conversions that never made it and see if we could like it, just do a bit more and extend our content on that. So. Yeah, I'd say that's one of my favourites overall. Um, Deathwatch for the Jaguar as well was quite enjoyable because there was very little known about it. Same with um, Virtual Tank. That was a game which was kind of room milled for the uh, Virtual Boy and nothing was really seen. but thankfully the developer had a prototype, showed some screenshots, so that was quite exciting. Uh, Green Lantern as well. I mean, just being able to find the SNES prototype and show some of that off, it's, yeah, it's... Oh, I could go on, but yeah, there's a few of them <laughs> I'd say, but <laughs> that I quite I, uh... enjoyed. I kind of enjoyed writing all of them, really, in a strange way. Oh, that sounds really yeah. odd
0: it's a it's a sign that you know you had a good time uh over the lat you took seven years to uh finally finish this book which i i very much understand like how much of an undertaking that uh could have felt like and yeah it certainly wouldn't make you pick your favorite child but i think my um, <laughs> my one one of my favorite entries for sure would be sebring which is uh very much a like Uh, predecessor to Pole Position, which I I played slavishly uh, on a Namco arcade compilation on my old N64 uh, to the point where, like, I think I broke the game once, but uh, (laughs) and uh, seeing seeing developers like kind of put out that as a new idea for the time and uh, what it would look like in the arcade with like an overhead uh screen that like threatened to drop on your skull (laughs) and that's like what that's one of the core reasons they were like we really don't want to get sued let's not design this game to be you know dropping tv screens on 10 year olds heads you know (laughs) (laughs) to to me that's that's the like iconic uh like go big or go home until someone tells you no do not do that okay yes sir
1: (laughs) (laughs) i mean uh, that's a good thing no health and safety in the 1970s so
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, Frank, I uh, really, really appreciate you taking so much time out of your day to talk about your book. It is uh, The Games That Weren't is such a fascinating tome. Um, I I hesitate to call it a coffee table book because it is so big it could be a coffee table. Uh, <laughs> and it, it is just a super fascinating look into a part of the games business that uh for for better or worse, I just it doesn't get covered and it's a beautiful book too. the design that you guys uh, did um, with the like fluorescence ink and I, I still have to like figure out how to get the fluorescent ink to work. but the artwork that you guys have uh, put in there with even the i was I was impressed to see like artist recreations of uh, what a game would look like based on developer testimony. Um, really mm. a fascinating job and thank you so much for that. So where can people buy the book and where can people, uh, find
1: you and your work? Um, so the, the book you can find at, uh, http colon slash slash gtw uk. Um, actually, shall I say that bit again? Cause I think I don't need to say all that, do I? Um, so you can find the book at, <laughs> okay. uh, www- www.gtwbook.co.uk um you can follow us on twitter f uh, just at ampersand f gasking and the website is games that if you want to kind of follow and see what what bits and pieces that we're finding
0: yeah and i believe the book is also just directly available on the uh, bitmap books uh, website which is bitmapbooks.co.uk um that the bitmap books itself is a i'm actually uh they just released their game boy box art collection or it's pre-order now and it comes out like i think later this month but that's going to be a uh a birthday or christmas gift for me (laughs) so oh nice it looks amazing yeah well it looks amazing well, thank you again, Frank. And folks, you can find The 1099 on social media at The 1099 Podcast on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Joseph Noob. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-K-N-O-O-P. Uh, feel free to follow us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcast content. And we will see you guys next time. Frank, thank you so much.
1: Okay, thanks, Joseph.